0: So we're in the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians is, is a wonderful book. It's written to the church at Ephesus, and there was a continuous battle, as we saw in other letters from Paul, for example, on Sunday mornings in the book of Galatians, this battle about Gentiles versus Jews. And, and what's the distinction, and, and what's the big deal, and, and what why is it a big deal? You see, for those who were Jewish, they thought that they just sort of took one more step when they came to faith in Christ, but they oftentimes kept their Judaism. Now maybe somebody else who grew up uh, in a Lutheran church or a Catholic church or, or some other religious denomination like that where maybe they grew up in it and then they become born again, but they want to keep some of their traditions. And there's nothing wrong with their traditions unless you're placing your faith in the traditions as opposed to Jesus Christ. When somebody begins to think, because, as an example, we had communion tonight, because I took communion, I can live like hell as long as I took communion, and that would be a biblically false statement. And some of the people in Paul's day and age, like we have today, were doing that sort of thing. So in the book of Ephesians, we know it's a prison epistle because Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul... The prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, so he was a prisoner, and he was literally in a Roman prison. Um, if you want to follow along, and this worked earlier, it doesn't. There you go. Okay, I don't know if that did. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Turn with me over to Acts chapter twenty-two. You may recall Acts chapter twenty-two, and then actually it begins in twenty-one, where where Paul begins to be or is arrested and eventually ends up in a roman prison but there is a big uh riot essentially in jerusalem um he's arrested in the temple there's a big riot the the roman officer arrests him then peter turns around or paul turns around and says something and the guard doesn't know what he's saying and he thinks something is amiss it says here in chapter 22 verse 1 brethren Fathers, hear my defense before you now, and they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew language, and they kept all the more silent. So there was a a riot because they had falsely accused Paul of bringing a non-Jewish person into the sacred Jewish-only portion of the temple, and so they were they were fit to be tied. It was a false statement, but they were whipped up into a frenzy, and unfortunately, we see those kinds of things happening even to this day, where sometimes it's rumors or other things. But he begins to speak to them, and he gives them his defense. He says in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, brought up in the city at the feet of Gamil, taught according to the strictest of our father's laws, and have zealous and was zealous towards God as all are today. So he's saying, look, I'm, I'm Jewish, just like you guys are. You're upset with me. But he goes on in verse 4, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering prisoners, both men and women. So Paul, not only were, first introduced, were introduced to him by the name Saul, early in Acts, where he stood by and sort of held the coats for those that were or killing the first martyr, Stephen. You may recall that on the road to Damascus, he had this encounter with Jesus Christ. But on that road, he was going to Damascus to persecute, what the church was called early on, which is people of the way. They weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way. Now dropping down to verse uh, 6. Now it happened as I journeyed that I came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered and said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then uh, as we, if we're to, I'm kind of skipping over this. uh, He said that in verse 12, then a certain man, Ananias, a devout man according to law, having a good testimony with all Jews, came out to him and said, come to me. And so he did, and he followed him, and he prayed for him, and that he could receive his sight. Um verse 19 so i so i said lord you know that in every synagogue i am imprisoned and beat and beat those who believe on you so this is what jesus or paul was doing his name was changed from saul to paul and when the blood of your martyr stephen was shed i was standing by consenting to his death guarding the clothes of those who were killing him then he said to me depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And that's the part that ties us in with verse one and two here of Ephesians is that Paul is saying he's now sitting in a Roman prison. Fast forward, he was arrested. He shipped shipped by ship back over to eventually Rome. He's waiting for Caesar to hear his case and to decide it. So Paul was in this Roman imprisonment now, he was under what we would call house arrest. In other words, he had freedom to move around the house, although he was still supervised by soldiers. But every night he'd be chained to a soldiers lest he would escape in the middle of the night if the soldier happened to fall asleep. Um, and he's just simply waiting for his trial. So he was able to have visitors come. He was able to write things like F, this book of Ephesians and send it out, but yet he was under house arrest. Why was he under house arrest? Because he was going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to who? To Gentiles. Who was the people that oftentimes were upset or confused about Paul? Gentiles. Jews as well, but he's writing to here specifically to the Gentiles. Now Gentiles are, is anybody who is not born Jewish. It doesn't have to do with nationality or race or creed or language. It doesn't even have to do with religion. It is simply a Gentile is anybody who is not Jewish. From the Jewish mindset and the Greek or the Gentile mindset, the world was divided into two classes of people, Jew and non-Jews. And if you were a non-Jew, the Jews hated you. If you were not Jewish, you were a gentile, you despised and you looked down at the Jews for all their weird customs and everything else that they would do. So he says, I'm a prisoner for you gentiles. If indeed you've heard the of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. If you've heard the gospel message, I'm sitting in this house under house arrest because I shared the gospel with you or I was an instrumental. Indeed, if you've heard, if you responded to the gospel message, it was at that time because Paul was the only one in any significant way going out and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Gentiles. Now, you may remember Paul's habit. He would go into a town, and he would look for Jews. He would look for anybody who was Jewish. If there was enough Jewish men in town, they would form a synagogue. If there wasn't, then there would be a place of prayer or or gathering together where the Jews would gather, which was typically outside of town at whatever the water source was. That's why when Paul went to Philippi, he met with Lydia on the outskirts of town because there was not enough Jewish men there together in that town to form a synagogue. But most other times he would go to the synagogue and reason with them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the answer. So this word dispensation that we find here in uh, verse 2 is a word that sometimes causes a little bit of confusion. Some of your Bibles may have a different word there. It may say stewardship. And stewardship, at least in our thinking today, may be a little bit better word, uh, only because uh, when we see the word dispensation, then we think of some, maybe you think of some theological arguments that people have about different dispensations and different things like that. But that's not what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying this was a period of time when God was working uniquely or specifically. So when we hear that word, or at least here in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, the same Greek word is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the dispensation speaks about an implemented strategy. So that's why stewardship is another word, but it's the idea that God or If you take that word outside of the context of God, it was a strategy that people or group of people would come up with. This is how we're going to deal with this. You know, we're going to fix the economy because we're going to do this. We're going to, I'm going to get myself a better job and I'm going to do this. It's an idea of a strategy, a scheme to do something. That's what the word that's in your English Bible dispensation or stewardship means. But here as well as in Ephesians 1.10, it should be interpreted this way, the implementation of the strategy. It's not just, I'm going to talk about a strategy, it's the implementation of that strategy. What's the strategy? That God wanted to rescue Gentiles. That's the strategy. God wanted Gentiles to come into the, the family, the fold of faith. This dispensation of grace, or this strategy of grace, which applies both to Jews and to Gentiles. You see, if you grew up Jewish, you were raised that you had to do certain things in order for God not to squish you like a little buck. You had to participate in Passover. You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to keep kosher. You couldn't work on the Sabbath and so forth. A long list of rules, over 600 of them. Maybe some of you grew up in a religious setting that was just like that. There is a long list of rules, but when we talk about what we live under as New Testament saints, what we might call the, sometimes it's called the dispensation or the strategy of grace or the new covenant of grace, is the idea that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for each of us. That's why we celebrated communion because Christ paid that penalty for us on the cross. You see, the law is not bad, it's just that it doesn't have the resource to change you or I. The law says, as an example, only serve one God. But when we have all kinds of other influences in our lives, it's impossible for us to do that in our own abilities unless God captures our hearts. A better example would be Jesus taking two of the Old Testament laws and elevating them. You shall not not murder, but remember what did Jesus say? You shall not have hatred in your heart. You shall not commit adultery, and he elevated that till you should not have lust in your heart. It was more than just my physical actions, but now the attitude of my heart. And so you and I as New Testament saints, under this grace, this implemented strategy of God, that we are brought near to God by the grace of God, by God's resources at Christ's expense. Grace for salvation, but then also grace for empowerment to live for him. So when we talk about this, what Paul is saying here in verse 2, indeed, if you've heard of it, you've heard this gospel message, this good news of Jesus Christ about this grace of God, which was given to me, was given to Paul. We read a little bit about that out of Acts 22. For you. This wasn't a personal message that I just get to hold on to. It was for you. It's for everyone else. And you, if you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is not just a personal thing. It's not just, okay, goody, I get to go to heaven. You have a responsibility to share and to disciple others into the kingdom of God. It's not just the responsibility of people up in front, all of us have this responsibility to share the good news, to disciple one another. We're called together. And so he says here in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. And we'll talk a little bit more about mystery in a few minutes. But it was by revelation. It wasn't something that Paul figured out. It wasn't that he studied and he figured it out. Now, I'm not suggesting we not study God's Word. But what I'm saying to you, people can read God's Word But unless they're born again, it isn't going to make sense to them. Not in a biblical sense of sense. They can understand it as a piece of history, a piece of literature. And they can talk about who authored this and the concept, the background, what the author's influences were, just like we might critique anybody else in a piece of literature. But what we're talking about is not the ink on the page And we're not even talking about the words themselves, but we're talking about a God-breathed, God-inspired words that come into our hearts and renew us, make us born again, make us brand new. This is what we're talking about, and this is done by revelation. If God did not tell us, we would never figure it out. How do you like that? If God didn't tell you or reveal himself to you, there is no way you would ever know about God. Some of us think we're pretty smart. Some of us have been in church a long time. Some of us know lots of stuff, and we can say, but wait a minute. I know this, I know that, I've read this thing and that thing. But the reality is, if God did not reveal himself and cause you to be born again by his Holy Spirit, you are dead meat. Before God. If we were to back up to chapter 2 verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's this gift that we have of salvation is absolutely and totally a work of God. It's not about us studying or understanding culture and history. And I'm not saying that culture and history is wrong. I'm saying if God didn't radically intervene in your life, in our culture to this day, we would be totally lost. If God didn't intervene in Paul's culture, in Paul's time, He would be totally lost. And so we need this revelation from God. And he says, He made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, and we'll talk a little bit more about this mystery as we continue forth. But what Paul is saying is this mystery was revealed. It was shown to me. Now, he hasn't yet given us all the details, but understand this. In English, when we see the word or we hear the word mystery, we tend to think of it as some sort of dark obscure secret you know like area 51 in the nevada desert or or something else like that some sort of mystery or if you're in a mystery buff you know who who done it and you got to really figure all these details out that is a mystery to us in the english but biblically speaking when we're talking about mystery it's it's something that's hidden but revealed. When I was a child, maybe a middle schooler, I remember my parents took me and my sisters on a a trip up to the city of San Jose, which is in Southern California. It's near the San Francisco Bay Area. And they took me to this house called, and maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't, the Winchester House. Let me describe this Winchester House to you a little bit. It's one of the strangest houses in America. It's located, as I said, in San Jose, California. For nearly 40 years of building, the house is still not complete. Anybody ever do any remodeling or watch a house or building be built? Can you imagine for 40 years and it's still not done? And it wasn't because they didn't have sufficient materials. In fact, they had materials stored up that they could continue working for another 40 years. They had three large storehouses with just building materials in it. It's estimated that the house cost $5 million to build. It's sort of a rambling structure, and I think I've got a picture of it up here. There we go. So uh, it's a picture of, of a house, kind of a Victorian-style house, but it's, it's strange because it doesn't have... Um, let me say it this way. There are 150 rooms in this house and not more than a dozen are on the same level. Now I'm not talking floors. It's not like five floors high. It's just like half a floor or three feet higher or three feet lower than something else. It has over 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows, 150,000 panes of glass. It boasts 40 stairways forty seven fireplaces, and thirteen bedrooms. Now, I hope I've piqued your interest, but follow with me because there's more to this, because not a dozen' uh, say not none of these hundred and fifty rooms are on the same s- lo- story or same floor. there are all sorts of bizarre stairs, bewildered and misleading. Most of them have thirteen steps, and each of the steps are two-and-a-half inches high and 18 inches wide. In one place, it's necessary to walk up 45 steps in order to descend eight-and-a-half feet. There are nine turns in the staircases. Some of the stairways are like dead-end streets. You climb up them and find yourself against a blank wall. Hallways, usually no wider than two feet. There are trap doors in many of the floors. The windows of all sizes and shapes are found not only in the walls, but also in the ceilings. But also chimneys are everywhere. Hundreds of uh, glass art windows open to, a window opens to a blank wall. Doors are built in the most unexpected places, some opening entirely outwards from the upper floor so that if you didn't pay attention, you'd open the door and you'd fall right out. One of the best mater- only the best materials had been used in the construction of this fabulous ma- mansion. The floors are the finest woods, no veneer is used. There are, thousands square f- there are thousands of square feet of finishes, wooden finishes, like the top of a grand piano, where you can see yourself in it. Art glass stems in the window and the doors, gold and silver chandeliers hang from many rooms, Gold and silver leaves decorate the walls. The ceiling of the bedrooms are engraved by famous artists and actually given the effect to make it look like those cobwebs. Most of us try to get rid of the cobwebs, but I guess that's one way to battle cobwebs. The grounds around the mansion are surrounded by dense hedges and a high fence over which no one can climb. Within our lower gardens and trees and shrubs, brought from many parts of the world. Now, this sounds interesting and strange, but what's the mystery part of this? There are push buttons found everywhere. Some are connected to gongs and bells, and others serve no obvious purpose. You see, it was after her husband, Mrs. Winchester's husband, and her only child died, That Mrs. Winchester moved to California and bought, at the time, a 17-room house under construction. But she was an adherent spiritualist, believing that she had received a message from the spirits telling her that as long as she kept building, she would live. That's why she had stairwares going everywhere. She had doors every place. She was always adding something to this. She was told if she stopped building, she would die. So Mrs. Winchester began her work. It's known as the Winchester House. Began her work out of her own hope for salvation, for eternal life. She withdrew into her mysterious mansion and refused to see anybody. In 38 years of her life in the house, she never visited another home. 38 years. She never rode a train or entered a public building. When President Theodore Roosevelt Roosevelt, came to visit, the San Jose Chamber of Commerce tried to get her to come meet him, and she refused. But you know the end of the story. Mrs. Winchester died. Her patchwork mansion was purchased, and it's now open to the public that you can go see it. Now, that's a mystery, right? Why in the world would this woman do this? How did she get so deceived into thinking that she could do this? But you can understand in one level, she thought this would rescue her soul, that she could live forever. She thought she'd found the fountain of youth, that she could live forever. She was wrong, dead wrong. Pun intended, but... You see, the word that we're looking at this evening, the word mystery, is um, it's the Greek word mysteron, which means secret, but it's the hidden truth of human knowledge or understanding that is disclosed by revelation of God. So it's something hidden from mankind that has been disclosed or revealed to mankind. So you and I can look through the Old Testament and see hints and clues about the idea that God bringing Jews and Gentiles together under one, Jesus Christ. But if you were Jewish at the time, only reading the Old Testament, you, it would be lost in that. And so this mystery is this idea that God wants to, by revelation, bring Jew and Gentile together under the head of Jesus Christ. If you want to turn one more place in Acts chapter 11, or I can read this to you, In Acts chapter 11, Peter is speaking. And Peter had the same revelation that Paul did regarding this mystery or regarding of Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren were in Judea, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. You remember the story. Peter was out in Joppa. He was getting hungry, had fallen asleep. They were preparing lunch for him. He got hungry, and he had this vision of a sheet coming down with unclean animals in it, and a voice said to him, go and eat, and he said, no way. And then God says to him eventually, Peter, what God has declared clean, don't you call unclean. And so he went to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, and Peter began to talk with them. And Peter said, why did you call me here? This is my paraphrase. And Cornelius says, Well, God spoke to me and said, Could I call for you? I don't know why you're here. You tell us why you're here. And Peter said, Well, I guess you're here to hear about Jesus Christ. And as he's talking with them, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And these Gentiles, who Peter had no intention of sharing the gospel with, became born again believers. After the fact, they call him back up into the Jerusalem area and they say, Peter, what did you do? You did something illegal. Gentiles aren't supposed to come to faith in Christ. And Peter's response is simply this. What was I supposed to do? God did it. And he's display, he says here that God revealed this to him, that he'd come, he witnessed with them. He re- recites the story to them. You see, he says here in verse 18, and they heard these things, they became silent. This is those that were interviewing Peter glorifying God, saying, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. See, so this is a radical thing. For you and I, we might think this is common stuff, but to, the, to Peter, to Paul, this was brand new information that somebody who wasn't Jewish could come, but God revealed it specifically to Peter through this vision. He set the whole thing up. He had Cornelius come to grab him, bring him back to his house, and the Spirit fell upon him. So God revealed or showed this is what he wanted to do through Peter and through Paul. Paul, of course, was the Damascus road and that Paul's mission would be to share primarily with Gentiles. But indeed, it wasn't just in the New Testament. We find over in Isaiah chapter 49 where the prophet Isaiah says this, Is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That would be the restoration of Israel. But notice this. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. The reason Israel existed, they were a strange and unique people, was because they were supposed to be a light to all the non-Jewish nations. And, of course, we have Jesus in Acts 1-8 who said this, But you shall receive power talking to the disciples after his resurrection, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which were the half Jewish, half breeds that the Jews wanted nothing to do with, and then the other phrase, you all know this, to the ends of the earth. Not going only to Jews, but to anybody who would hear the gospel. You may recall John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's no prerequisites. You don't have to be a certain skin color, live on a certain continent. You can have faith in Christ. You don't have to grow up in a Jewish home. And this is what he's revealing to us. Verse 3 again in in Ephesians chapter 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I've briefly already written by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So as you read this, Paul is saying, understand my knowledge. Now, please understand, Paul is not giving them brand new stuff. What he's doing is he's opening up the Old Testament to them and saying, see, here it was. Here it was again. Here it was again. For us, as an example, we think about the birth of Jesus Christ. And you think, wow, how would you know what city he's going to be born in? Well, Micah tells us that he'd be born in the city of Bethlehem, but that he'd be called out of Egypt, but he'd be known as a Nazarene. And and there's countless examples in the Old Testament that give us details about just the birth of Jesus Christ, not just his life. And so many of those things we can look back at and go, oh my goodness, it's been there the whole time and I didn't see it before. And that's what Paul's saying to us. And as you continue to discover and read God's word, God wants to reveal to you more and more things, not brand new things like some weird cultic thing, but to reveal to you more layers about this great mystery of our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the mystery is twofold. The mystery is that Jews and Gentiles come together in one family under the head of Jesus Christ. But the mystery is also this, that God willed for us to know Colossians 1.27 To make known to us what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. This is, or which is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Under the Old Testament system, you couldn't approach God. You couldn't even go, unless you were Jewish, to the temple to offer sacrifices. But only one time a year could you go into the place that was the Holy Holies where God resided. And then only one person. The one priest chosen for that year, only he could go in, and he represented the people. But in this New Testament, or this new age of grace, you and I have what? Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not that you have to travel to a certain city, a certain building at certain times. You have Christ in you right now. You had Christ in you a half hour ago. You'll have Christ in you tonight when you go to bed. And guess what? When you fall asleep, he'll still be there. And when you wake up in the morning, he'll still be there. This is a tremendous thing. Every other religious system is about us trying to earn our way to God, doing enough stuff, knocking on enough doors, being disciplined enough to earn God's favor. And what God is saying to you and I is, no, I freely give it to you. Most of society, most of the world says that's too easy. I don't want that. I've got to work my way. God says, I want this. It's a mystery, not a secret like the Winchester house. It's a mystery in the sense that God wants to reveal this to us. And it comes by revelation. Again, not revelation in the sense of a different gospel like the cults proclaim, but revelation in the sense that you and I come to God and we say, God, show me, help me understand this. All of our born again experiences should be something like Jesus, if you're there, if you're real, would you answer me? And then you found in your life that God answered you. Maybe you set out some certain thing that you wanted him to do. And he didn't have to, but he did because he wanted to reveal himself to you. And so we have this great mystery the idea that two different religious groups, Jews and non-Jews, could be combined together and that we would have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So he goes on here, uh, by which you have read, verse 4 again, that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, in which other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. It was revealed. God pulled the curtain back and revealed using the, the apostles and the prophets, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, to show us this great mystery. Verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. You see, the issue is the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand that you and I are dirty, rotten scoundrels, that we deserve hell apart from the gospel? The gospel term literally means good news, but it's good news because you and I could never earn or approach God. We are not good enough, and we will never be good enough. But we needed this marvelous, wonderful gift from Jesus Christ that he would reveal himself to us, that he would work on our hearts to the point that we would say yes to Jesus. We've read this already in Ephesians chapter 2, that God is rich in his mercy because of his great love. That for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. Please don't take the gift lightly. It costs God everything. It costs him the most expensive thing ever, His only begotten Son. Shame on us as Christians when we take the grace of God or this gift of salvation with God lightly. It's a marvelous, wonderful thing. It's a great mystery for us to dive into and understand multiple layers of it. But it's not something for us to take lightly. God has declared His love for you. He has said, I want to have you in my kingdom or in my family. And as a matter of fact, I've given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment towards that, as a deposit, so that you would know that one day, indeed, you will spend eternity with me in heaven. That's what God did for us. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 6, That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister. This is Paul speaking about himself. I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the affecting working of his power. So the term minister, in our modern culture, sometimes it's the professional religious person. And that's not what it means. A minister means a servant. That's all it means. So if some minister somewhere expects you to do things for him or her, understand that's not the biblical context of it. Minister means somebody that serves, a a servant, a slave. That's what the term minister means. And he came, this is Paul speaking on himself, I became a minister according to what? Not because he earned it, not because he went to a, a, a college. Now, nothing wrong with college, that's not what I'm speaking about, but notice this, he was called, gifted into this work of the ministry, this work of service. It was a gift from God. It was a gift of the grace of God given to me for the effect of working by whose power? By God's power. Sometimes we as Christians, we we mistakenly get things confused. We think, okay, God's rescued me. Thank you, God, so much. In order to show my appreciation, I'm going to do all these things. Instead, God says, no, I just want you to yield to me. I didn't save you by my grace so that you could work the rest of the way to spiritual maturity. I saved you by grace that you would Grow in this maturity. Grow in the sense of being enjoying that fellowship. On Sunday mornings, I talked about John chapter 15, that classic passage of Jesus talking about the Father being the vine dresser, Jesus being the vine, and we are the branches. You remember that story? And the idea is that with that vine, it's to produce fruit. But what does the branch do? What's the branch's role in this vine? The branch's role is simply to hold out the fruit so it can grow. The branch's job is not to get into the dirt. The branch's job is not to be stable in the wind. The branch's job is simply to hold out the fruit. Now the father comes along and trims away. Don't we all love it when God trims us? He says, oh, yeah, I need you to have a little bit more faith. And we go, oh, yes, I want faith. Just not that way. Or we say, I want more patience, but not right now. So the vine dresser comes along and trims out the junk of our life. For what purpose? So that the fruit can grow and the fruit can be displayed. You and I are fruit hangers. We hang out the fruit. We're to show the fruit so that others would get the glory, that God would get the glory. That's what your job is. Your job, Paul's job, was not to make himself an apostle. Paul's job was not to evangelize the world, although those were things that he did. His job was to give glory to God, and God chose Paul to do that, and God chooses each of us to do that. It may be at your work, it may be at school, it may be in your family, but God has chosen you in that environment to be his fruit bearers, to bear fruit, that you would be that person in that home, in that classroom, on the job, sharing the love of Jesus Christ and that you are able to do it by God's empowerment. It's not that, okay, we're going to stoke you up, we're going to get you excited, we're going to you know, get you razzed up to play the game or to do the boxing match or whatever else. No, this is a total and absolute reliance upon God. We don't grow because we do certain things. We grow because we exercise our faith. On Tuesday mornings, we've just finished uh, a couple weeks ago the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which is that hall of fame of faith where the author of Hebrews gives us example after example of individuals from the Old Testament who did what you and I might consider great things. But the author of Hebrews says it was their faith. I think, for example, of Noah. When I usually think of Noah, I think, man, he was the ark builder. It was it awesome, good woodworker, right? Good animal, he's a zookeeper, woodworker, kind of all in one, a renaissance man, right? But the author of Hebrews says to us, it was his faith in action that built the ark. Maybe you think of Abraham. Man, he left a town that he he knew to go to someplace else that he doesn't know, and God would tell him, on the way? How many of you want to do that? How many of you want to move to some other place and go, I don't know where I'm going, I just know I'm going that way? until God tells me something else. And we admire Abraham. Maybe he's a great adventurer. That's what it is. He just likes to travel. No, he was a man of faith. Sarah and Abraham. God promised Sarah and Abraham they'd have their own children. (laughs) Sarah laughed. (laughs) Not a, oh, I'm happy laugh, but a scoffing laugh. Like, yeah, right, really. Don't you see how old I am and how old he is? How is this going to happen? but then we're told that they were people of faith. Now, they weren't perfect individuals, by the way, but they were men and women of faith. It also tells us about Rahab. Do you remember the story of Rahab? She was inside the city of Jericho. She's known as Rahab the harlot because that was her profession. But she was a woman of faith when she interviewed or talked with the spies, she said, the whole town has heard about the things about the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. The whole town, but notice only she said, and I believe it, would you rescue me? Would you save me when you come and conquer this town? What did everyone else in town do? Ha, who were these Jews? Remember what they did? They, walked, they put the worship team out front. That's probably the only good thing they did, right? Get all the musicians, put them in front. Walked around the town, and then go back and camp. They did that for six days. On the seventh day, they did it seven times. Then they shouted, and you know the story. The walls came tumbling down. But Rahab was not Jewish. She came from the bad background. She lived in the wrong town. And yet you notice when you... Read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that Rahab is in the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ. You see, God took a woman with a bad background, a bad profession, living in the wrong town, from the wrong genetic family, we might say, and he superimposed her into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful example of what God wants to do in our lives? Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you come from the wrong family. Maybe you're all confused. But God wants to take you and I and to restore us, to make this usable for him. It's not about you making yourself usable. It's you allowing God to make you usable. And that's what God wants to do in all of our lives, that we would be one big family. In the kingdom of God, There is not Jew or Greek, which is another term for Gentile. In the kingdom of God, there's not master and slave. In the kingdom of God, there's not one ethnic group against another ethnic group. There's not one economic status against another economic status. In the kingdom of God, we are all one. So it doesn't matter what your biological background is. It doesn't matter what your educational background is. It doesn't matter what your skill set is. The only question is, really, what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? And as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're called to continue to do that, to share the good news, understanding that God's got to reveal it to that knucklehead over there, but God wants to use you to be part of that process of revealing it to that knucklehead. God used Peter even though he wasn't willing. God used Paul when he was wanting to kill Christians. God wants to use you to reveal that, to be the person that God uses to bear forth that fruit that others can say, what is that? What is it about you? I saw this in your life, that in your life. You're not going to be perfect, but you can share with them about the tremendous love, the grace of Jesus Christ, How God is in the business of restoring lives and giving us a purpose to be forgiven of our sins, to have a heavenly inheritance and literally the power to live for God today. That's what God wants to do.